Buongiorno, hello, and thank you for listening to She Speaks Volumes, the primer for over 500 years of feminist writings and philosophy. This is episode one of season two. In season one, I was a little more regimented. It was my first time doing a podcast, and I was really struggling to find the format. I selected all the writers in advance and placed them in chronological order. In season two, I want to experiment more. I may spend more than one episode on a book, a writer, or an idea. I might jump around chronologically. And I want to do a play, like a radio play. That will be towards the end of season two. Also, I want to start a book club to discuss some of the ideas that come up in these books. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to feralculturelab.com. The link is in the show notes. Throughout this series, one of the themes that is emerging is complicated women or challenging feminists. And what I mean by that is many, if not most of the writers I have covered, lived in conflict with their philosophies. It underlines the chasm between abstract feminist theory and ideals and our lived experiences. Over the next few episodes, I am reading from Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. First published in 1949, it is a major contribution to feminist philosophy, and it was a harbinger of what has come to be called the second wave of feminism. The Second Sex is written in two volumes. The first is a summary of collective knowledge, biological data, history, and myth. The second volume examines the life of a woman from birth to death. This episode is an excerpt from Volume 1, The End of Chapter 2. I have created a glossary or legend of sorts in the show notes. It has short biographies of the women referenced and a definition of some of the terms. There are also links to various editions of the book. An excerpt from The Second Sex, written by Simone de Beauvoir. Women's entire history has been written by men. Just as in America, there is no black problem, but a white one. Just as anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem, it's our problem. So the problem of woman has always been a problem of men. Why they had moral prestige at the outset, along with physical strength, has been discussed. They created the values, customs, and religions. Never did women attempt to vie for that empire. A few isolated women, Sappho, Christine de Pizan, Mary Wollstonecraft, Alempe de Gouges, protested against their harsh destiny, and there were some collective demonstrations. But Roman matrons in league against the Oppian law, or Anglo-Saxon suffragettes, only managed to wield pressure because men were willing to submit to it. Men always held women's lot in their hands, and they did not decide on it based on her interest. It is their own projects, fears, and needs that counted. When they revered the mother goddess, it is because nature frightened them. And as soon as the bronze tool enabled them to assert themselves against nature, they instituted patriarchy. Henceforth, it was the family-state conflict that has defined women's status. It is the attitude of the Christian before God, the world, and his own flesh that is reflected in the condition he assigned to her. What was called the Quarrel des Femmes in the Middle Ages was a quarrel between clergy and laity about marriage and celibacy. It is the social regime founded on private property that brought about the married woman's wardship, 
and it is the technical revolution realized by men that enfranchised today's women. It is an evolution of the masculine ethic that led to the decrease in family size by birth control and partially freed women from the servitude of motherhood. Feminism itself has never been an autonomous movement. It was partially an instrument in the hands of politicians and partially an epiphenomenon reflecting a deeper social drama. Never did women form a separate caste, and in reality they never sought to play a role in history as a sex. The doctrines that call for the advent of women as flesh, life, imminence, or the other are masculine ideologies that do not in any way express feminine claims. For the most part, women resign themselves to their lot without attempting any action. Those who did try to change attempted to overcome their singularity and not to confine themselves in it triumphantly. When they intervened in world affairs, it was in concert with men and from a masculine point of view. This intervention, in general, was secondary and occasional. The women who enjoyed a certain economic autonomy and took part in production were the oppressed classes. And as workers, they were even more enslaved than male workers. In the ruling classes, woman was a parasite and as such was subjugated to masculine laws. In both cases, it was almost impossible for her to act. Law and custom did not always coincide and a balance was set up between them so that woman was never concretely free. In the ancient Roman Republic, economic conditions give the matron concrete powers, but she has no legal independence. The same is often true in peasant civilizations and among lower middle-class tradesmen. Mistress-servant inside the home, woman is socially a minor. Inversely, in periods when society fragments, woman becomes freer, but she loses her fife when she ceases to be man's vassal. She has nothing but a negative freedom that is expressed only in license and dissipation, as, for example, during the Roman decadence, the Renaissance, the 18th century, and the Directoire. Either she finds work but is enslaved, or she is enfranchised but can do nothing else with herself. It is worth noting, among other points, that the married woman had her place in society, but without benefiting from any rights, while the single woman, honest girl or prostitute had all man's capacities, but until this century was more or less excluded from social life. The opposition between law and custom produced this among other curious paradoxes. Free love is not prohibited by law, but adultery is a crime. The girl that falls, however, is often dishonored, while the wife's shocking behavior is treated indulgently. From the 18th century to today, many young girls got married so that they could freely have lovers. This ingenious system kept the mass of women under guardianship. It takes exceptional circumstances for a feminine personality to be able to affirm itself between these two series of constraints, abstract or concrete. Women who have accomplished works comparable to men's are those whom the force of social institutions had exalted beyond any sexual differentiation. Isabella the Catholic, Elizabeth of England, and Catherine of Russia were neither male nor female. They were sovereigns. 
it is remarkable that once socially abolished their femininity no longer constituted inferiority there were infinitely more queens with great reigns than kings religion undergoes the same transformation catherine of siena and saint teresa are saintly souls beyond any physiological condition their lay life and their mystical life their actions and their writings rise to heights that few men ever attain it is legitimate to think that if other women failed to mark the world deeply it is because they were trapped by their conditions they were only able to intervene in a negative or indirect way judith charlotte Corday, and vera sasserlich assassinate the frondeuses conspire during the revolution and the commune women fight alongside men against the established order intransigent refusal and revolt against a freedom without rights and power are permitted whereas it is forbidden for a woman to participate in positive construction at best she will manage to insinuate herself into masculine enterprises by indirect means aspasia madame de montenon and the princesse d'azorsan were precious advisers but someone still had to consent to listen to them men tend to exaggerate the scope of this influence when trying to convince women she has the greater role but in fact feminine voices are silenced when concrete action begins they might foment wars not suggest battle tactics they oriented politics only as much as politics was limited to intrigue the real reigns of the world have never been in women's hands they had no role either in technology or in economy they neither made nor unmade states they did not discover worlds they did set off some events but they were pretexts more than agents lucretia's suicide has no more than a symbolic value martyrdom remains allowed for the oppressed during christian persecutions and in the aftermath of social or national defeats women played this role of witness but a martyr has never changed the face of the world even feminine demonstrations and initiatives were only worth something if a masculine decision positively prolonged them the american women united around harriet beecher stowe aroused public opinion to fever pitch against slavery but the real reasons for the civil war were not sentimental the march eighth nineteen seventeen women's day might have triggered the russian revolution but it was none the less merely a signal most feminine heroines are extravagant adventurers or eccentrics notable less for their actions than for their unique destinies take joan of arc madame roland and flora tristan if they are compared with richelieu danton or lenin it is clear their greatness is mainly subjective they are exemplary figures more than historical agents a great man springs from the mass and is carried by circumstances the mass of women is at the fringes of history and for each of them circumstances are an obstacle and not a springboard to change the face of the world one has to be firmly anchored to it but women firmly rooted in society are those subjugated by it unless they are designated for action by divine right 
and in this case they are shown to be as capable as men. The ambitious woman and the heroine are strange monsters. Only since women have begun to feel at home on this earth has a Rosa Luxemburg or a Madame Curie emerged. They brilliantly demonstrate that it is not women's inferiority that has determined their historical insignificance. It is their historical insignificance that has doomed them to inferiority. This fact is striking in the cultural field, the area in which they have been the most successful in asserting themselves. Their lot has been closely linked to literature and the arts. Among the ancient Germans, the roles of prophetess and priestess fell to women because they are marginal to the world. Men will look at them when they strive, through culture, to bridge the limits of their universe and reach what is other. Courtly mysticism, humanist curiosity, and the taste for beauty that thrive in the Italian Renaissance. The preciousness of the 17th century and the progressive ideal of the 18th century bring about an exaltation of femininity in diverse forms. Woman is thus the main pole of poetry and the substance of works of art. Her leisure allows her to devote herself to the pleasures of the mind. Inspiration, critic, writer's audience, she emulates the writer. She can often impose a type of sensitivity, an ethic that feeds men's hearts, which is how she intervenes in her own destiny. Woman's education is mainly a feminine conquest. And yet, as important as this collective role played by intellectual women is, their individual contributions are, on the whole, of a lesser order. Woman holds a privileged place in the fields of the mind and art because she is not involved in action. But art and thinking derive their impetus in action. Being on the fringes of the world is not the best place for someone who intends to recreate it. Here again, to go beyond the given, one must be deeply rooted in it. Personal accomplishments are almost impossible in human categories collectively kept in an inferior situation. Where can one go in skirts? asked Marie Bashkirtseff and Stendhal. All the geniuses who are born women are lost for the public good. If truth be told, one is not born, but becomes a genius, and the feminine condition has, until now, rendered this becoming impossible. Anti-feminists draw two contradictory arguments from examining history. One, women have never created anything grand. Two, women's situation has never prevented great women personalities from blossoming. There is bad faith in both of these assertions. The successes of some few privileged women neither compensate for nor excuse the systemic degrading of the collective level. And the very fact that these successes are so rare and limited is proof of their unfavorable circumstances. As Christine de Pizan, Poulain de la Barre, Condorcet, John Stuart Mill and Stendhal stated, Women have never been given their chances in any area. This explains why many of them today demand a new status, and once again, their demand is not to be exalted in their femininity. 
They want transcendence to prevail over imminence in themselves, as in all of humanity. They want abstract rights and concrete possibilities to be granted to them, without which liberty is merely a mockery. This will is being fulfilled, but this is a period of transition. This world that has always belonged to men is still in their hands. Patriarchal civilizations, institutions, and values are still, to a great extent, alive. Abstract rights are far from being wholly granted to women. In Switzerland, women still cannot vote. In France, the 1942 law upholds the husband's prerogative in a weaker form. And abstract rights, as has just been said, have never been sufficient to guarantee woman a concrete hold on the world. There is not yet real equality today between the two sexes. Philosopher Simone de Beauvoir was an existentialist, and The Second Sex is an existentialist feminist work. But what does that mean exactly? Existentialism examines the lived experience of the individual, whereas feminism is a philosophy that springs from having a feminine perspective as distinct from masculine. And for the greater part of civilization, feminism has also come to indicate the struggle of women for equality. So then, the second sex seeks to define the experience of women, women living in a patriarchal world, a world in which men have always constructed the roles women play. I explore this more fully in a blog post, which can be found at feralculturelab.com. In the next episode, I'm reading an excerpt from Volume 2, which covers the role of prostitution, a topic that is inextricably linked with the roles that women play in our culture, both historically and in contemporary society. If you'd like to check out the past episodes from Season 1 of She Speaks Volumes, please visit feralculturelab.com. Also on the website, you can sign up to be notified of the book club, or you can come by and like the Facebook page, where I will also post notifications of the events. Thanks for listening to She Speaks Volumes. (laughs) 